Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have Debbie Diggs from the hit musical Hamilton, and we also have Bill Cobbs from the ACLU to talk to us about their Smart Justice campaign. We need to take a look back at what we've asked for historically to know how these systems of oppression that are hyper-resilient are going to respond to any of our requests to help save us. We must save ourselves. And we have the news, as usual, with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam Clinton's back. woo before we jump in, though, I'll say a word about instant gratification. You know, I had to learn that not now doesn't always mean never. And that just because I can't have or do exactly what I want in this moment doesn't mean that it's not going to come about. And I'm working on a project right now and I want to finish just one part of it. And I wanted to include these four things. And I had to tell myself this morning, like, not now doesn't always mean never. So that's the message that I'm giving you today. Let's get to it. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Clint Smith back again. Whoop whoop. Here we go. At Clint Smith the third. I I I he back. is back. The one, the only. Clint <laughs> Smith the third. And this is DeRay at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. You know who else is back? He's actually not back. That was a terrible segue. But he secured the bag, LeBron James. We just found out. Like Whoa. five minutes ago, we were just before we started recording. LeBron has officially Whoa. joined the Lakers for uh, four years, one hundred fifty-four million dollars. I can't even conceptualize how much money that is. <laughs> That's so much money. But LeBron is headed to LA. He, people, we didn't know how long we were gonna wait, but he is, uh, he is out here, and and we will. I'm very hyped. This is gonna be really interesting. Um, shout out to Cleveland. <laughs> you had a few good years, and it's gonna be rough for you moving forward. I mean, we'll see. I mean, in other sports news, though, because I'm all about soccer, the World Cup is well underway, and hey. Mbappe. <laughs> Mbappe. Yeah, so <laughs> for those who didn't watch France uh, completely annihilate Argentina. See ya, Messi. Yeah, I mean, this was an incredible match. This is probably one of the best matches of soccer I've seen in a long time, and Mbappe, 19 years old, he plays on club team Paris Saint-Germain, and he just came out, scored two goals. He did an incredible 60-yard run and uh, ended up they fouled him, and it was a penalty that led to a third goal. And in the end, they won 4-3 to three against Argentina, beat Messi, and it was cre- incredible seeing you know a star rise to the occasion and a new generation of soccer be born. I also want to shout out the beautiful country of Colombia. Um, I am currently recording in the pod from here, and Colombia has been my home away from home um, for the last five days. I'm on a trip with some of the most fantastic friends a girl could ask for. We were here when they advanced, and so obviously, like, I think I was, like, trying to get out the uh, uh, final few emails before I could really put myself on vacation. Then all of a sudden, I hear, like, fireworks and screaming in the street and horns honking, and I'm like, what is happening? And I'm like, oh, yeah. 
the match is going on and they must and then my text messages started going off and saying you know that they'd advance so we're, we're going to be here for the next game we're very excited We've all got our jerseys and everything. That's going to be awesome. The other big news this week was uh, the incredible election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York City, who beat out a longtime leader in the Democratic Party. And the grace with which she won, the the vigor of the campaign, like her messaging, all of it was just such a rock star and a model for for us all. So yeah, it was incredible to see, uh, you know, happening, you know, here in New York. In, nobody really thought, you know, I, in the mainstream, they weren't covering this. They didn't actually pay attention to what was happening. Local media was covering it. Folks in, in activist communities were covering what was happening. The community was seeing Alexandria, you know, all over, showing up, being visible, you know, listening to the community concerns. But it, it was incredible to see how she was able to sweep this election in a way that, you know, folks did not actually anticipate happening and show the power not only of uh, organizing and being in community, but of really proposing a far-reaching and powerful agenda uh, that folks can get behind. So I hope there's more of that to come. And that's, uh, Sam, is why I think we really have to be paying attention to this election, because what we can't afford to do is make her the exception to the rule, right? And treat her as though, you know, she won because she's charismatic or she won because she had an engaging story. Like, no, there are some real tried and true principles of disciplined community organizing and principles of equity in action here that people should actually be paying attention to, not only so that they can replicate them in their own races, which I I hope to certainly see people doing, but also so that established parties and donors can recognize that there are people out there um, who are hungry for exactly these kinds of messages. And this was not a fluke and this was not a fly by night that this is actually how people want to be engaged with. And she probably had the most succinct, well put definition of democratic socialism that I've come across when she was asked on Colbert after her sort of whirlwind set of interviews. He said, like, well, how do you, you know, socialism is a charged term for a lot of people. How do you think of uh, what socialism is or how do you define democratic socialism? And she said, in a modern, moral, wealthy society, no person should be too poor to live, which is just, I mean, that's like, that's yeah, perfect. perfect. Really right? I, and I think that is literally the platform upon which Democrats should base their entire next six, six months. Because um, that's, that's real. And, and I think that that was such a, a, a perfect way to illustrate the work that is necessary and, and the type of world that we're trying to build. Which includes abolishing ICE and along those lines of talking about ICE. So my piece of news is coming from Springfield, Oregon, where the local activists have successfully organized to get the city council to vote unanimously to cancel its contract with ICE. So that contract, it specified that it would it would create a partnership where the city police department, the Springfield Police Department, would allow ICE to house uh, immigrant detainees in its jail. And this is important because when we think about ICE, we often think that this is a massive deportation system that is all owned and operated by ICE. But in reality, it is uh, created in partnership with many different entities, from private prison corporations to uh, local governments, cities and counties. So much so that of the 35,000 people detained by ICE on any given day, 17,000 of those, or about half, are detained in city and county jails, which contract with ICE and actually get paid per immigrant detained there uh, on a daily basis. And so 
what Springfield illustrates is that activists can actually organize in addition to fighting uh, this administration and ICE directly, can actually dramatically impact ICE's ability to detain immigrants and to operate this massive system of deportation by focusing on the local level and getting cities and counties that have these contracts with ICE to cancel those contracts uh, and deny ICE those resources uh, that it uses to detain more and more immigrants. And if you're interested in learning more about whether your city uh, or county is engaged in contracting with ICE, uh, you can actually go to the National Immigrant Justice Center and they have a report uh, that they released in August 2015 that is focused on immigrant detention contracting. And there they actually have the list of contracts, they have some of the terms of those contracts and when they expire, if they have an expiration date. And it's a great place to start organizing to reduce the number of people detained by ICE and to begin making progress towards the goal of abolishing ICE. So what's really brilliant about this tactically is that it focuses on a particular cog in the wheel. And Sam, I'm really glad that you kind of clarified for people exactly how this system and this process can work. And the fact that ICE plays a very specific role in that process, but does not own the process outright. Um, because a lot of people, I think when they look at those of us who say abolish ICE, they think that we're just following a clever hashtag and we don't understand how any of this works. In fact, we do understand how it works and we understand just how critical the role is ICE plays in the entire system. And so going after that one cog in the wheel can potentially throw the whole thing off balance, as you were saying, Sam. And, and I think that that's an important organizing lesson for us to learn. But it's also really significant here because unlike departments like the Department of Labor or, you know, the Department of Education, uh, some of these other functions are very new. ICE is not a foregone conclusion. ICE is not an automatic entity. ICE was created by Homeland Security in 2003. It was created very specifically to address the kind of threats that we had experienced on 9-11. And so part of why going after this particular department is a really, really thoughtful strategy is because ICE does not actually have to be, and it won't be that difficult of a leap for people to make to imagine a life without ICE, because we lived without ICE for decades. I will close by saying that the really unfortunate shooting of local journalists in Annapolis, that tragedy was a reminder for a lot of people that there are dangers right here in America, that when they manifest themselves in white men, we don't seem to be taking great pains to deport them, to detain them, or to restrict their entry. And yet we continuously do with people of color. I'm struck by this victory, Sam, and I'm hoping that we can see more moving forward. So one of the most fascinating things about the Abolish ICE movement, if you will, is that it, it didn't even necessarily start as a movement. I think, you know, certainly I, I don't want to discount the people who have been on the ground for sure, who have been calling for the abolition of ICE um, for years and years. But I think it didn't start to gain mainstream traction until a few months ago and, and still wasn't taken seriously and was mostly sort of compartmentalized by many people, even folks on the left, as this sort of unrealistic Internet meme or joke or or thing that shouldn't be taken seriously, and certainly not by Democratic legislators. But it's fascinating because now the Abolish ICE movement has 
infiltrated, for lack of a better term, the the Democratic Party and and in, in necessarily so, right, and is forcing Democratic politicians to reckon with their complicity in allowing ICE to continue to operate in the really dangerous way it is. And and so much to the point now that Kirsten Gillibrand, one of the you know leading contenders for 2020 and a, and a senator in the U.S. Senate, uh, recently, a few days ago, uh, announced that she was for uh, abolishing ICE. And that's a, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And is a reminder, I think, for me and for so many of us that that so many times we we feel as if we have to operate in a sort of instrumentalist or or small step um, capacity or with a sort of tiny framework that only allows us to propose solutions that feel politically palatable at that moment and that feel politically possible at that moment. And I think it's a reminder for us to to really dream of the sort of world that we want to build and to demand the necessary steps to be taken in order for us to get there. And ICE is not a part of the world that I want to live in. It's not a part of the world that so many of us want to live in, as Brittany said, and it doesn't have to be. And Ocasio-Cortez's election is is in and of itself a reminder that uh, you can run on a platform demanding to build the sort of world that uh, we all want to live in, and that in and of itself is is enough to galvanize people behind you. Uh, when I'll say, you know, when I, when I look at Springfield voting to end the, the contract with ICE. What was interesting is that it started with a, a call to amend the contract, as Sam said, that they were only going to house detainees charged with felonies or serious misdemeanors over the criminal history. And then because of pressure from citizens, they voted to just straight up in the contract. But what's even more interesting is that during the hearing, one of the council members noted that and the quote is, what began as a routine jail contract in 2012, a contract that requires no direct input from the council, has become a lightning rod for our community in 2018. And like you think about like how a whole city can enter into a contract with ICE to detain, to hold detainees without any input from the city council, like just as like a matter of process, like that should frighten you. So hopefully we'll see people uncover these processes across the country and really go to bat. What I also didn't know was that the immigration matters that are now handled by the Department of Homeland Security used to be handled by the Department of Commerce and then were transitioned over to the Department of Labor and are now with the Department of Homeland Security. So you see how this conversation of immigration has gone from like a sort of an a commerce issue, like a how do we make sure it's an economy, how do we make sure that the economy is stable, to one about like labor, to now one about national security. And it's just a reminder that we could choose to put these functions anywhere in the government and that we can create a pathway to citizenship that doesn't require the detention of anybody and that doesn't require like people being in cages. What I also find interesting about the abolish ICE sort of language being used, piggybacking off of what Clint talked about, is that you see people like Trump, who's like doubling down on how much we need ICE at the same time that he's essentially dismantling the FBI, right? So he is like doing this double play of like law enforcement is incredibly important, da da da, while he is literally like firing the people at the FBI, talking about how they have no credibility and they're not a real law enforcement agency. At the same time, you see Bill de Blasio, who's saying abolish ICE, and like the NYPD is a questionable police force, right? So it is important that we don't let people off the hook for the way that they enter into this abolish ICE conversation, because it's sort of easy now because ICE is putting kids in cages, but there are police departments that are doing similar things 
in cities across the country and you don't see this same sort of vigor about holding them accountable about dismantling like literally the same type of structure sam thanks so much for sharing that good news uh because in this fight for immigration and the rights of immigrants we are continuing to see multiple steps backward shout out to everyone who went to tweeted instagram made signs for or was able to show up at one of the families belong together rallies that were happening all over the country on june 30th but here's what's most fascinating obviously this administration is clear on just how much the american people disagree with not only the policies that have been separating families but with this zero tolerance policy that's leading to an incredible increase in detentions more broadly Um, They know that we don't like it, and he signed that executive order that didn't do a whole bunch of anything uh, in order to try to reclaim some kind of image. Um, But now we're actually seeing that while all that is happening in the foreground, in the background, that this administration is actually just attempting to change amnesty altogether. Um, That's right. You heard me. They're essentially trying to retroactively create the legal justification for all of the detentions that they have been committing since creating this zero tolerance policy. So um, Vox has an exclusive on this proposed change. And shout out to Daryl Lind. If you are not reading Daryl Lind's immigration coverage in Vox, um, you are absolutely missing the important details in this conversation. And what they report is the following that there is a memo that currently exists that people spoke off the record about, but that Vox was able to view and verify, that proposes sweeping changes to the amnesty system and process. Changes so sweeping that they are as dramatic or potentially more dramatic than the 1965 law that created the immigration process we have today. Um, So we're talking about an incredibly dramatic shift that would do two things primarily. One, it would make anyone who is detained for illegal entry ineligible for asylum. So that means that if, like many Central Americans, they are applying for asylum through the means of crossing in between one of the border gates and presenting themselves to a border agent and applying for asylum in that way, instead, if they enter in that way and they are caught and detained, they are now ineligible for asylum at all, irrespective of of what the issue is, which you probably have already guessed will have a sweeping effect on people from those countries. The second proposed change, among many others, but the second really critical one here is that it would further a recent uh, court ruling that would make it nearly impossible for victims of domestic violence or gang violence to qualify and win asylum. So again, these are targeted uh, policies, Knowing what is happening in Central American countries, knowing where Central American people are attempting to enter America, these are targeted policies against them in particular. Um, There's no way that this is not racially based, just like that travel ban. There's no way that we can allow this to happen because, again, this is a retroactive justification for all of the detentions um, that they've been doing with their zero tolerance policy. So we have to pay attention to what's happening in the foreground, but this is happening in the background, and it is of all the importance in the world. There are a couple of things that I think of when I think about this. One is that there's a Border Patrol agent interview that happened recently where he talked about smugglers are sometimes forcing asylum seekers to illegally cross the border at these ports uh, where crossing would now become a crime. So 
they're like crossing the border to get out of the country. And sometimes it's not of their own will. So that is sort of a challenge. One of the things that is that is really interesting about this when I think about the recent news of the children being detained and separated from their families is that there are reports now from immigration lawyers that uh, asylum seekers, parents who've been separated from their kids are actually losing their asylum hearings in record numbers because they are too heartbroken to actually prepare for the process. And you see that this is like another way that this administration is creating a crisis in order to continue a crisis. And that's sort of wild when I think about it. And, and the last thing I'll say is just about Jeff Sessions in general is that it's interesting because people like the prison reform bill that it's not clear would actually do a whole lot of good and that the administration uh, could just do on their own. They could have the same desired outcomes without passing legislation is that we see time and time again that this uh, we know this because this is from a, a leaked memo uh, from the Department of Justice is how we know that they're planning to change the definition of asylum. And Jeff Sessions at every turn is just making it harder for everybody. But there's still people who pretend that Trump cares about criminal justice reform. And it's how the, the PR of Kim Kardashian it's sort of wild that that took so much news and it painted Trump as this person who had empathy and really understood. And it was a great example of the difference between individual cases and systemic change. And this, all of the systemic change that we're seeing from this administration uh, is negative for people of color with regard to anything about immigration or criminal justice. And we can't be blinded by his PR tricks that are like one-offs and literally leave the system uh, stuck with sessions. So we often offer analysis on all of the really technical details that we've just discussed and how they impact real people. Um, and I want to bring it back to real people. A lot of people have been sharing Warson Shire's poem, Home, um, in response to this moral crisis and abdication. Um, and there's one stanza in it that has been shared a lot. And that particularly strikes me in this moment that I will read to you as we close this out. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled means something more than journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. So we should just always remember that this is affecting real people every single day. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. 
two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. For my news, I just wanted to briefly kind of point out so much has happened this week as as tends to be the case almost every week, it feels like now. Uh, Among the things happening is that uh, Anthony Kennedy, uh, who was considered by many to be a swing swing vote of the Supreme Court, uh, has announced his retirement. And there was a sort of collective in anticipation of who Trump would dominate and potential implications that that might have for Roe v. Wade and affirmative action and death penalty and all of these different things that uh, may have looked very different had Mitch McConnell not, you know, unjustifiably blocked Obama from appointing Merrick Garland to the court for, what was it, seven or eight months? That in and of itself is is an egregious thing that's, that's happened, but it's made even more egregious when you consider the fact that, uh, as some reporting in New York Mag illuminated, that Democrats have won the national vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. And following the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, four of the justices on the Supreme Court will have been appointed by presidents who took office despite having fewer votes than their opponent, which is just a pretty staggering thing to consider that the the single most powerful court in the land, uh, that f- when Kennedy steps down and his, his um, successor is appointed, that four of the justices on the court will have been appointed by people who did not win the popular vote in this country. And this is reflective of, of the sort of injustice, uh, as we've talked about before, of the Electoral College generally. I mean, you can see it in the fact that 
George W. Bush in 2000 and Trump in 2006, each won 30 states, um, but lost the national vote. And, and the way that the Electoral College um, reduces the power of voters who live in states that um, have a large black population, large Latino population, and, and they sort of give this outsized power to rural white folks um, because, well, one, in the Senate, it, it, because of the way that our, our Senate is constructed that people you know you have the same amount of votes whether or not you live in new york california as you do in north dakota and and montana but but also you know the electoral college um with with certain states uh in the midwest and and in other folk places having just this outsized power to determine the fate of the entire country and and i brought this up because these are things we sort of know intuitively but when you really think about the fact that democrats have won six of the last seven presidential elections in terms of the popular vote and that four of the justices again were appointed by presidents who took office despite having fewer votes it uh it makes you even more upset than you already are we're talking about the supreme court and that's really important i'm going to focus too on the other courts so we know the Supreme Court is really important, but Trump already has appointed 21 of the 167 current full-time judges on uh, the federal appeals courts, and he plans to fill an additional 20 more by the end of the year. He and the uh, and the party have already put one-eighth of the federal appeals bench in their seats, which is wild, and there are 10 more appeal court nominees in the queue and a dozen other vacancies that are awaiting nominations. So... Like he's already had a huge impact on what the court looks like, and especially at the appeals level, like not just the Supreme Court, which is sort of fascinating. And you think about like how the Republicans blocked so much of what Obama did with regard to the court, that Obama tried to expand the court because of the backlog in cases. They denied it. Obama tried to appoint a justice before he left. It was blocked. And now what you see is the Republicans are saying like, oh, no, we got to appoint somebody now. Like, da, da, da. And you see some of the weakest senators like Collins. You see Murkowski. You see people being like, you know, well, we won't. You know, Collins is on the record saying she won't support a justice who doesn't believe in Roe v. Wade. It's like, Collins, just wait till after the elections and then and then let's go through this process with fidelity. Uh, she could do that. I'd love to see Tim Scott stand up and actually have principles in these moments. And like, we're just not seeing that. But independent of the Supreme Court, Trump has already had a long lasting generational impact on the lower courts. And that's something that, you know, doesn't get as much play as it should. And let's talk about the immediate impact of this Supreme Court and therefore what it can teach us about what the risks are for um, a Supreme Court that continues to be overrun with minority rule and folks who didn't actually win the popular vote but have gerrymandered their way into uh, silencing voices. So, you know, just this the past few weeks alone, we have seen religion be allowed to be used as an excuse to be homophobic. We have seen the effective dismantling of labor unions and the process of collective bargaining through the decision on the Janus case. We have seen what is effectively a ban on Muslims traveling into this country be upheld by this court, and not only be upheld, but um, be proclaimed with a decision that uh, reminds us that the Supreme Court only really cares about what is facially neutral, is the quote, uh, despite the fact that we know in application it is deeply racist, and it was highly likely very racist racist in intent, which um, Justice Sotomayor 
reminded us in her glorious, amazing descent. But that is just what has happened in the last few weeks. This is before Justice Kennedy is replaced. Um, we also know that the Supreme Court has essentially punted on answering the question about racial gerrymandering. And so we're likely to see this kind of trend continue, not just because Trump has the chance to appoint someone, but also because we know this Supreme Court just punted on whether or not we uh, can outlaw, according to the Constitution, extreme gerrymandering. And so as far as we can tell, um, and as far as the eye can see, we will be continuing to deal with this minority rule um, for years to come. And so there's a great amount of risk at the Supreme Court level, and there's a great amount of risk at all levels. Um, And I just wanted to get clear on what could go wrong in this scenario based on what has already gone wrong. Um, So my news is uh, about the birth of the notion of the liberal media. And interestingly, it came from uh, the 1960s. And it's interesting before I, before I say this, you know, it's like people will say to us, like, we're always making everything about race. Why are you always talking about race? Not everything's about race. And You know, the not so shocking shocker is that everything is normally about race. So this is also about race that in the 60s uh, during the civil rights movement, what you saw was uh, the media started calling for the end of segregation because segregation is bad. And the right started to view the call for desegregation as taking hold across the country, partly because the media had started to amplify it and and say that race-based segregation was bad. And what the right did as a way to fight the media was they came up with this idea of like the liberal media bias with the, with the notion that like calling for desegregation was a bias and and that that was a slant and that the media should be neutral because obviously being racist is, you know, a party platform now for sure. And you see that that was directly about race and that that the the label of the liberal media is what gave birth to things like Fox. Uh, Now we see the version of it being like the fake news and stuff like that. But again, it's always been across that fault line of race. And even when race isn't as overt in the conversation, what we find when we review history is that it is often the subtext, which is why we talk about it every week on the pod because to not talk about it would be to ignore the big fault lines in this country. I want to say something about civility because these ideas of liberal media, liberal bias, all of these kinds of things are tools. They are intentional tactics used to undermine uh, certain voices, to silence important truths, especially as they affect marginalized people, um, and to promote harmful, harmful ideas. Uh, And so, you know, the the leveraging of this uh, kind of phrasing as vitriol and the weaponization of journalists just calling a thing a thing... um, is reminding me very much of this conversation about civility this week. And I am finding myself very frustrated that people are more concerned with whether or not Maxine Waters, the congresswoman from California, was civil enough in her conversations about what happened to Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the restaurant that she was asked to leave. Mostly because if you really count everything that we've talked about today, the abolition of ICE, the 
secretly proposed changes to asylum such that it effectively makes it impossible for people from Central America to seek and qualify for asylum. Um, the kind of gerrymandering and minority rule that people experience and therefore uh, voices are silenced every single day um, to the kind of fake news that we see come out supposedly in opposition to a liberal media bias. None of those things are civil. None of the atrocities that we are currently experiencing are civil. And I just wish that we would be less concerned with how civil our words are or whether or not our march has a permit or whether or not we're making someone angry and be more concerned with telling the truth and doing good. Yeah, Dre, I'm thinking a lot about the this point you brought up about the sort of origin points of notions of liberal bias, quote unquote liberal bias in media and What's interesting, I did some research, and what's interesting is that uh, in 1968, this writer, Edith Efron, wrote a book um, that was based on some kind of kind of sketchy scientific research and methods that she used in an attempt to claim that the media was biased against Nixon. And she said she watched these thousands of hours of film and was counting how many positive words versus negative words were said and, and wrote this book about it. So when Nixon heard about this book, he told his staff to go out to all of these different bookstores and buy every single copy of the book at these bookstores in an effort to get it on the New York Times bestseller list. And so they did it. The staff went out to like dozens and dozens and dozens of, of bookstores and and it worked, right? They got Efron's book on the New York Times bestseller list um, and this book played a, a not insignificant role in the sort of early early days of the idea of, of liberal bias in media or the, the liberal media and sort of mainstreaming that notion. And, and it's just, uh, I, you know, that's just an anecdote, but I thought it was so uh, illuminating of, of so much of the sort of like crookedness that, that is Richard Nixon and, and how the, even the way that this was brought into mainstream discourse was done in this like super shady way. You know, it's also a reminder of how the tactics really haven't changed. The, Slogans haven't changed, you know, the approaches really haven't changed. They've been tweaked slightly. So, you know, liberal media is still around and now there's fake news and, you know, all of that. But the fundamental agenda and approach to politics that we're seeing the Republican Party engage in today really traces back to the opposition to desegregation uh, following the civil rights movement and the rise of Nixon. Uh, and so much of this is, as you said, DeRay, about race. You know, it is fundamentally uh, grounded in an opposition by folks who did not want to see uh, segregation end, who did not want to see equality. Uh, the opposition by those folks to a new political uh, order where suddenly uh, you had the Civil Rights Act, you had the Voting Rights Act, you had a semblance of formal equality. Uh, and that opposition continues to this day. The same people uh, who opposed it back then, many of them are still alive and voting Republican and saying the same things today. Um, their you know, descendants, direct descendants, their kids are, many of them are in politics right now or in political office or are at Fox News as pundits, right? And so these are the same people saying the same things that have been said for generations. Uh, and the fact that these arguments are still taken seriously, that there is still this conversation about whether or not we should be civil in the face of opposition to our existence, um, I think clearly a lot still needs to be learned uh, from the experience of the civil rights movement, from the experience of 
what it means to actually demand uh, equality and justice, and that that is actually something that that should be taken not as a biased thing to say, but as a, a fundamental uh, human right and something that everybody should be on board with. And if you are not on board with that, then uh, you know that is not because you just happen to have a different preference or opinion. It is because you fundamentally don't agree with our right to exist, and that's not that's not okay. That's not something we should celebrate or you know have at the table eating dinner with us. That is something that we should condemn at every occasion, and we should organize against and vote out of office. Uh, you know, this is not about civility. This is about justice and equity, and you know everyone needs to get on board with that. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And here's my conversation with David Diggs and Bill Cobb. Bill and David, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. So excited to talk about the ACLU Smart Justice work and and the work that both of you are doing as a part of it. You know, I'd love to begin, though, with how you got involved with the ACLU. In 93, I um, pled guilty to robbery, kidnapping, criminal conspiracy, and violation of Uniform for Arms Act and was sentenced to 6 to 12 years in Pennsylvania State Prisons. I was paroled in 2000 and upon coming home, um, found it extremely difficult to find suitable housing, to get employment, or even to go back to school. I just started working really hard to address the policies that were preventing me from going to school or getting housing. 
And over the course of 17 years, I go from a person who just returned home from jails and prisons to an individual who was running a reentry program in the city of Philadelphia um, named Redeemed, whose mission was to eliminate systemic discrimination practices aimed at people living with arrest and convictions. And as a result of doing that work, developed um, expertise and sophistication around policy analysis, organizing. And as a result, the ACLU put out a job offering for the Campaign for Smart Justice, where the mission is to reduce our nation's jails and prison populations in half while combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. So I see this job posting and all the uh, prerequisite experience I had. But at the top of the experience portion, it said that they preferred someone with criminal justice interaction. And um, I was curious. I'm like, what does that mean? And it literally meant that they were looking to hire somebody who was qualified, but who had also potentially been in conflict with the criminal justice system, meaning arrested and or convicted. Um, I applied for the job. And therefore, today I'm the deputy director of the ACLU's Campaign for Smart Justice, which is actually among its largest campaign in its 98-year history. My first interaction with the ACLU, I can remember, was just volunteering at a conference in San Francisco when I was maybe 15 or something like that. I, I'm from Oakland, California, and I went to Berkeley High School. We all sort of you know, fancied ourselves activists um, as kids. And so I remember a bunch of us sort of going over and, and doing some work at this conference and me becoming sort of fascinated with the work that the ACLU was doing. But and then on and off throughout my life, I have, you know, very close friends who have worked with the ACLU periodically. And um, but with this initiative, I actually um, came into contact with the Smart Justice, Justice Initiative at Sundance uh, just this last year. So I I just finished a film um, called Blind Spotting, and we we took it to Sundance as a, a passion project of mine uh, with one of my best friends, Rafael Casal, and we've been working on it for the last ten years. We finally finished it. We took it to Sundance, um, and it is about uh, two best friends growing out and growing up in Oakland, and one of them. Um, Colin is on the last three days of his probation for a, a violent crime, and he witnesses the police shooting of an unarmed black man while he's driving home from work one day. It's sort of the the story of how their friendship has changed over the next few days. Um, so we're at Sundance with this film, and I had been approached by Jess, maybe? can't remember who approached me, but um, to host a screening at Sundance of some animated shorts. Um, that were part of the Smart Justice Initiative that were um, created around stories of former of former inmates and people who are living on probation now and dealing with the system outside and about how and so these shorts based on people's lives about how families are affected, how whole families and communities are affected by. Um, the prison system. I didn't really know anything about it before I went to host the things, except I had some talking points. Um, but I sat in the room and watched these shorts and was kind of blown away. Um, I was so moved by them, but also very moved by the discussion around them, um, having family who's been in the system and watching people sort of navigate post the system and all of, all of the sort of pitfalls of that. Um, and then finding out more about this initiative and finding out about the the goals to reduce the prison population like that is a <clears throat> it's a thing it is easy for me to be passionate about.
So I just sort of asked how I could help. And maybe if this film, because there is synergy uh, between the, the film that we're making and the Smart Justice Initiative, if there was possible tie-ins there. So now we're here and we just screened it at the at the conference, at the ACLU National Conference, which was great. Um, but I'm, I'm just sort of trying to be an advocate for the program because it is something that directly affects so many people who I'm close to in my life. Cool. I'd love to. I can't wait to see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll come back to you in a second because I want to talk about the intersection of, of art and activism. But I want to figure out. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in, around the criminal justice stuff, around mass incarceration, certainly around the police. Um, and when I look at the Smart Justice campaign, I, can you help us understand how this is different than sort of what we've been talking about in the criminal justice reform space for the last 20 years is that everybody's sort of like the idea of cutting the prison population 50% is sort of like a cool talking point now. Of everybody says it. And we, you know, the last study that just came out shows that there's been like a small decline in the prison population at the aggregate, even though we have a lot of work to do at the, you know, at the micro level, uh, all of the, the sort of the pillars, the idea of reentry, the idea of like sentencing reform, all these things are like, you know, we, we've been there before, right? Yeah. And that the some would say that the outcomes actually haven't matched the money, the time, the energy, the films, like all the things that we've sort of put into it. So I'd love to know, like, what do you think makes this go round at it different? Thank you for that. Um, you're absolutely correct in that this it's an industry and that there are so many people who are working to reduce the number of people in jails and prisons and they're using a variety of tactics to do so. What's unique about the Campaign for Smart Justice is that it's housed at the ACLU, and the ACLU's strength is that we actually have 54 affiliates in all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. So we have a physical presence on the ground in every single state in which we actually do work, meaning a physical office. We drive all of our outcomes through those affiliates. Those affiliates are in relationships with the communities that are directly impacted by the issues. And instead of us analyzing the problem from afar, we're actually going out to these communities, having meetings and then discussing our desire to reduce the number of people in jails and prisons. And then with community, with other stakeholders, with philanthropy, we are determining what the goal should be for that particular state. You know, we say we want a 50 percent reduction, but the truth of the matter is in the legislative calendar, it may be possible that there's a 15 percent reduction or a 25 percent reduction if you choose sentencing to address or a 7 percent reduction if you can do some tweaking on policies with probation and parole. But over the course of a number of years, the goal should be to drive it towards 50 percent reduction. And so <clears throat> doing it in community where people are at impacted by that issue more than anything else. But I think the thing that's very different about the Campaign for Smart Justice is that we've hired about 40 full-time people across the country in various positions, and 17 of those individuals are people who have served time in our nation's jails and prisons, and they are actually working and driving the campaign in those respective states. So now, instead of having a lobby day, where traditional ACLU will show up to uh, talk to legislators about a respective policy. The people who have served time in jails and prisons are actually having these conversations with their legislators because they understand them differently. And then it's also allowing us to build the armies that we need so that if we if this problem has been impacted by 70 to 100 million people, um, we have to create opportunities for them 
to actually get engaged in advocacy on behalf of themselves. The question that we should always ask ourselves at the ACLU and any institution like ours is, is it best for us to lead, follow, support, or get the hell out of the way? And to be uh, two questions, both about Savar. One is why police violence for the movie? Like, why was that like a, how did that rise to be sort of the issue that you thought was important? And what does that mean? You said you've been working for a decade. It came out now in a, in a moment where sort of police violence is like a, continues to be a national story. Um, and then how do you think about your responsibility, if any, as an artist and somebody who has a platform, but people know you not because of your commitment to issues around justice. People know you because of your art. So what responsibility do you think you have, if any, uh, to highlight issues of importance to the larger society? Well, I think, okay, so for the for the first question, we, the, the premise of this film when we set out was just to, we knew we wanted to do some things in verse. Uh, Raphael and I are both poets, and we, we, so we were trying to have parts of the film be in verse, and then we knew we wanted it to be about Oakland. That was essentially the premise when we started writing. Um, very close to when we started writing, Oscar Grant was murdered at, at Fruitvale BART station. So the um, the discussion in Oakland was about police violence. Um, and it was about this, this, this... So that became part of the story. We couldn't tell a contemporary Oakland story without that. The way that discussion has changed over time is, to me, the biggest difference in the film from when we started till now, which was, at that time, Oscar's face was everywhere. Um, and there were protests and there were riots and pe- the whole community was very invested in this one person. Um, the way the discussion around these kinds of shootings feels now is that there are so many of them that are reported that we can't place. I can't remember who was who was it in, you know, in Baltimore, who was shot, who was choked. There's, you know, so it's become difficult to feel personally affected um, in the way that it was then uh, in terms of art. Um, and how it relates to sort of my activism. We've been talking about this a lot in the in the sort of Q and A's associated with this film. But art is is political inherently. There's you're either reinforcing the status quo or you're challenging it, basically. Um, so at a certain point, you have to make a choice. I think about this all the time. I have this band called Clipping, and we uh, it's it's rap music with no first person, essentially. So when we started making it, it was this sort of experiment about what, it, you know, if you remove the eye from, from rap songs, like what, does that still equal a rap song? Um, and it was sort of this hive mind of just like hip-hop cliches and, and street terminology and stuff like that and trying to see what came out of it. But we were... Uh, pretty devoted to trying and trying and remove perspective from it. Over the course of a couple albums, we realized that our politics actually have to come through and they do anyway. Um, there's a politic to choosing to be gender fluid in a rap song, even if the reason that you're being gender fluid is because you're trying to remove the identity from the from the person rapping the song, right? But there's still a politics to that. Um, and so I think over time, our our work has gotten more and more sort of overtly political, um, in a lot, or at least we've allowed the work to wear our politics on the on the surface of it. And um, so I feel that way about kind of everything that I'm doing, particularly right now in my life, where you know, thanks to s- sort of the success of Hamilton and and some of the other things I've been involved in, I I. I 
I mean, rarefied air for an artist in just that I have the luxury of choice. So the projects that I choose are a political statement too, right? I, um, I, so I, I think about that a lot. When, when I'm being handed 10 or 15 different scripts, what does it mean that I choose this one as opposed to any of the other ones? Even though nobody may know that, um, that you know, the, the work that I put out reflects on me, because, particularly right now. You know, it was different five or six years ago when I had to say yes to anything with a check attached to right. it, but that's not <laughs> the case anymore. And so since I have that luxury, there's some responsibility that comes along with that. Um, so we talk about... Criminal justice a lot on the pod, so don't necessarily need a, a recap of all of the issues. But I would like to know: Is there like an issue that you think is like an under-discussed part of the work? And I ask because I think about you know we did this project on um, felony theft amounts, which was interesting to me because I didn't know. So like in Oklahoma, theft and t- theft up until two thousand one, theft over fifty dollars was a felony, and like that seems wild, and like I just didn't know, right? So I think about things that I'm learning every day. I'm like we should probably talk about that more in public because, like, that is sort of wild. Are there any part? what parts of uh, the issues that the campaign focuses on do you think just, like, not get the public sort of conversation? I think about bail is high. Everybody Now everybody's, like, a bail. Even if they don't understand that we got rid of bail in 91, you know, in D.C., like, people still think about bail reform as, like, this novel thing that is, like, happening now. It's like, 91 is when it, you know, like, it got rid of bail and, like, the world didn't end in D.C., so that's sort of big now, and prosecutors are, like, all the rage if you don't support a prosecutor change and, like, you, you don't really care about criminal justice in this moment to some people. But what are the things that aren't getting the, like, play that you think are really important? It's funny because the very things that you just mentioned are the things in which we're doing the most of, right? And the reason that we are interested in eliminating cash bail is because our goal is to reduce our nation's and jail's prison population by half, which would make it 1.2 million people. And currently today or any given day, you have anywhere between 500 and 600,000 individuals who are incarcerated, not because they've been convicted, but because they don't have a certain amount of money. And so I think that overall what the movement is doing is correct in order to provide the most relief. But the thing that I think what I my dream is to organize across the country and to advocate for the elimination of discrimination aimed at people living with arrest and convictions. We need to become a protected class of citizens if we are going to address this culture of being excluded legally, um, where other organizations have done it or other institutions have done it, and now it's illegal to discriminate against them. But individuals who have served their time, they don't owe anything at this point. So to punish them perpetually is just unconstitutional and un-American. So what's missing is an effort that would actually mobilize and galvanize those 70 to 100 million people have been impacted and then their families and their friends and their communities to make demands on legislatures to stop punishing people after they pay their debt to society. Um, Few people are having that conversation, but because it's such a massive undertaking and because obviously we don't have one criminal justice system, we don't have 54 criminal justice systems, we have thousands of criminal justice systems. However, people frequently say that we got here by a thousand cuts. And so we need a thousand band-aids. But I think that the people who have been impacted by this would be better suited to help fight for themselves and fight to create this change if we actually align the movement in a way that 
resonates deeply with them. It's difficult to ask me to come out and advocate for a piece of legislation and I don't have a job or it's difficult for me to come out and participate in a rally and um, I don't have a place to live. And the reasons we don't have these things is because of these legal exclusions. And so it kind of sort of would be the the most efficient and effective thing that we can do to change the quality of life for directly impacted people would be to stop this pervasive culture of discrimination and then provide them with the same opportunities as everybody else to freely pursue the American dreams without all these burdens and these barriers and these obstacles, because obviously it's possible. You know, I, I know that it's possible because I did six and a half years for what people would consider a violent crime. And today I'm a national deputy director at the ACLU. It's possible. But what I had in endure to get here makes it a slim chance that any actually will. You know, we um, it's very challenging. It's very hard to actually get your life together and to take care of yourself and to positively contribute to your community when everything is literally driving you back into a jail cell. When everything is easier to get a gun or to get a pack of drugs than it is to get a living wage job. And then in the schools in which they close down, you know, in Baltimore, kids going to school with no heat. In the city of Philadelphia, no books are in the classrooms. What would you say to so I would imagine there are people who agree with you philosophically mm-hmm. and then the details they're like they just don't necessarily not there. So you think about like I used to be the chief human capital in the school system in Baltimore and people there are people who like everything you said, they're like, Yes. And then if I try and if I try to hire a convicted child molester to be a teacher, they are picketing my office, being like, DeRay, I get it. I get they serve their time. Person can't be around my kid, right? That like, how do we start to have sort of honest conversation about the tension that people have between like the theory and the practice? And I, you know, we would see it all the time in the school system that like people were all about that until like it was like somebody who had a had a sex convic- a conviction. They didn't, if I hired them as their teacher, it would be like World War Ten, right? Um, so how do you navigate that space? You know what? That's called blanket discrimination. It's illegal for the government to actually do it. We need to actually find out what transpired in these individual cases. You know that a 12-year-old in some places in America can send a picture with something exposed and then become convicted as a sexual, um, you know, a, a sexual offender. And then 10 years from now, that individual applies for employment and is labeled a sex offender and therefore can't get that job. So I think it's ridiculous that we use blanket discrimination to disqualify people from work. What we should be doing is finding out what actually transpired and whether or not that individual committed that offense, whether or not that individual pled guilty, what were the circumstances behind that? But forget that. What's your character today? What's this business necessity? Just because somebody's convicted of a sex offense in America doesn't mean that they're a sexual predator or that they have the capacity or desire to do it again. We are being a little lazy and we're doing the same thing that we say we don't want done. We're actually perpetuating it as well. So the truth of the matter is, is that we have to actually start having conversations with people who have been in conflict with the criminal justice system. When we are thinking about employing them, when we are thinking about having them be a part of our community. But ultimately, if they've served their time, it means that whatever the punishment was, they completed it. 
And I think it's very unfair to us in society to continue the punishment of an individual for the sake of saying that I don't feel safe around you. Well, that individual's still going to be in your neighborhood, still going to be in your community. And if you marginalize them and we already are living in marginalized communities, how does that make us any safer? It actually contributes to um, an outcome that we don't want. So my last question would be around you talk about the idea of people impacted by the criminal justice system. Uh, it seems like you use that phrase in the absence of victims and victims would say that they are equal, that they are impacted too, right? That like that there's a way that we could create the system. There's a way that we could talk about this that sort of only privileges people who have been incarcerated. There's another way that that could totally privilege people who have been victims of people who committed crimes. And that it seems like there's a version of this that like excludes them. So if you take the perspective of the victims uh, as people who are very impacted, then that is a very different, like the construction of that system is very different. And so I'd love to hear sort of what you think, because there are people who think that uh, the people in the criminal justice reform space sort of ignore the voices of victims, that we sort of, the pendulum swings too far. So what would you say to that? I would say that people are just not aware of that. Those individuals who have been harmed by crime are also a part of the same individuals who are arrested and or convicted. In addition, we do our work in conjunction with people who have been impacted by crime. Um, ASJ is a great organization where there are people who have been victims of crime who are for criminal justice reform. Organization in the city of Philadelphia, um, Mothers in Charge are all women who have lost their children to gun violence, who advocate for restorative justice over punitive justice. And I realized that through this conversation, I didn't intentionally make it sound like it was one group, but it actually is. And what you'll find out is that hurt people typically hurt people. So I don't know what the exact data or the studies or the numbers are, but the, by the time an individual has done something that warrants an arrest and conviction, they're usually people who have actually been harmed by crime in very violent ways as well. So I don't see them as a separation. I see um, justice is when all parties involved in a crime have an opportunity to heal. That's the victim. That's the perpetrator. And that's the community in which all of those individuals are in. So we are ever going to be just. We need to make sure that all of those parties have an opportunity for healing. Well, I just (laughs) in witnessing this conversation, there's a thing, there's this twofold thing that you guys are trying to do that I think is it's it's important to be aware of because a while ago you brought up the sort of parts of this discussion that feel like they're in vogue right now. And that um, is that is that blindsiding us to other to other parts of the issue, right? By focusing on by uh, focusing on prosecutor reform or on on bail reduction or all of these things, right? It's kind of inside baseball in a lot of ways, right? Um, there, even for someone like me, like I didn't know the scope of that discussion, and I like fancy myself woke and am like at this moment directly involved with this organization. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I think in these discussions, and I think about this a lot these days, you have you have to do two things at once that are very difficult, and that's why I love sitting in this room listening to y'all talk. Is we have to have a nuanced discussion um, that is several steps ahead of the national discussion. You have to have that discussion publicly and allow people to latch onto it. Um, because you have to trust that your audience is smart enough to understand nuance and desperately wants to. At the same time, you also have to move the base of that discussion up so that we eventually,
eventually we don't have to talk about bail reduction anymore because that's a given because societally in general that is the most accepted point of view so we don't have to drop back down here right you're sort of trying to move two needles at the same time um and it's it's a it's a very difficult thing i think in terms of messaging for an organization like the aclu how do you you know how do you um create these sort of massive movements that uh, that can get everybody on board, that can create this groundswell of change, but also still have a nuanced discussion, which is where the real important work lies, actually. Because if we're not doing that, you know, it's always going to be, if you're, it's always going to end up being a black or white issue. It's always going to be, it's always going to be victim versus offender, which is not what we're talking about is the healing of communities. And that, that I think is a, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And it's one that I think about all the time. So I just want to point that out because I appreciate the discussion mostly. <laughs> I mean, what I should have said is that those groups, people who run groups of, of victims' rights organizations are also a part of the Campaign for Smart Justice. They're advising us. They're a part of it um, because we are all mindful of it. And again, many of the people who have harmed people have been harmed. And so thank you for raising that because it's important that people understand that we are neglecting victims um, in this work, that we are victims as well. That makes sense. And I ask because, you know, I think about I'm, I live in Baltimore and Lord knows there are people, you know, we have a lot of homicides and there are people who uh, look like me and you and you and they are voting for mandatory minimums. They are like they are. It's just not people. People have this way of talking about community as this monolithic thing. And what we know to be true is that people are impacted by these things in a non-theoretical way. And all of a sudden, like it just changes. Right. And I worry about the way that we I've always worried about the way we talk about the impact like the impact thing always stresses me out um but that's why I asked yeah if, if you um like and this has already happened we don't actually have to forego this without having insight of the past um James Foreman's book locking up our own talks about the culture of DC at the time when Police didn't come here because police were killing black and brown men and not policing us, but brutalizing us. But then the crack cocaine epidemic came along with all of the guns. And then there was an asking for police presence without the memory of how police always police black and brown communities. The, 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 the acts was, hey, come and do for us what you do for white people when these things are going on in our neighborhoods and communities. And when they came in our communities, they did to us what they always did, which didn't actually resolve the crack cocaine epidemic and make us safer. It actually made it worse. And so we need to take a look back at what we've asked for historically to know how these systems of oppression that are hyper resilient are going to respond to any of our requests to help save us. We must save ourselves. There are people who would say that there are two ways to think about power, that there is a conception of power that's this idea of power over, right? That is this idea of winners and losers, right? It's a the finite pizza pie and some people have more, some people have less. There's another way to think about power that's this notion of power with, this idea that power is expansive and infinite and it's most potent when it's shared. And that part of our work is about the transition from power over to power with, that like we live in a power over sort of world, but we can conceive about a relationship with each other that isn't rooted in domination, right? That isn't rooted in oppression. And that is one that says that the war is not permanent, the war is present, right? That like we fight a war because it's here, but that we conceive of a world where like the war is not something that we wage, that we actually, people of color, marginalized people, get to wake up every day and do all the things that isn't battle, right? That like we think about how much of our lives we spend engaged in battle, when white people sort of just get up and just get to be, right? And like we're up here like, you know, trying to get basic things like food and water, right? So I, my push is like, is the war permanent? 
because that's what you said. Yes, it is what I said. I've seen no evidence of there not being struggle and outcome in the history of this world. Prove it. As human beings, we've always struggled. I think that's living. Now, the difference is, is having the insight and the wisdom to know that you're human and you're going to suffer and you may long suffer. But there's so much joy in that. There's so much joy in knowing that you have the ability to start in a particular place and you can define where you want to actually go. I think what a lot of people end up doing is checking out or quitting or just succumbing to the circumstances, environment and people, places and things that are adverse to them getting what they want. We all do. But no, I, I, I do see it as a perpetual pull, not necessarily of good and evil, but different people want different things. And those individuals are always going to pull to them the things that they want. And we're going to pull the things to us that we want. But I think if we don't talk about class, when we have these sorts of conversations, that we're really not talking about the drivers of things. It's not people with the same income levels that are from different neighborhoods and communities that are truly designing policy systems that are producing outcomes that all of them are the victims of. They're powerful, influential individuals in this country and groups of people who are really dictating what our policies are, who really are managing legislatures. We are trying to hold them accountable with people power, but other folks are holding them accountable with money power. When the people are leading, we produce different outcomes. But today in our country, that's not the case. And do I ever see that not being the case? I hope for it. Right? I hope for it. And I get up and I work towards it every day. And I hope that I inspire other people to get up and work for it. Because only then is it possible. I'm okay with hope for it. I can buy that. I just worry about, like, I can even accept the presence of conflict, right? Which is different to me than the presence of suffering. And I think that there is like an important distinction when we talk to people, and this is just my bias, but I can accept the presence of hope. I'm okay with hope. Yes, I won't push. But this idea that like, uh, I, I think I think in some ways it actually plays into an ideology of the supremacy of whiteness that, that we sort of wake up and say that suffering is permanent because I want to believe that like God didn't make earth man and white supremacy, right? That there was like a world beat before that. And that like in the same way that, you know, when Ark said, when Ark, when King says that the Ark bends towards justice, that the moral Ark bends towards justice, we know that it bends because people bend it. And that when we say the system is broken and people say it's operating as it was designed, what we take from that is that it was designed, right? Like somebody made this up. And because people made it up, we can make something different. And this idea that like suffering is permanent makes whiteness and, and sort of white supremacy seem like this permanent thing as opposed to a creation. And like that is sort of my. Yeah, push. I mean, it's two simple things, right? I think when I talk about suffering, I'm talking about humanity. I think when we talk about this struggle, I think that's when we're talking about people actually separating themselves from other people and not centering their humanity, but centering their physical or religious or gender identity and then putting us against each other. I think we're together first and then we separate from each other and that's where this conflict lies. So I don't disagree with what you just put forward either. I think we're just saying the same thing a little differently. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. <laughs>